Greetings, listeners and learners. You are now tuned in to The Complexion of Teaching and Learning, a podcast docuseries in which we traverse across time to explore the socio-historical, political, and professional insights and experiences of educators of color. I'm your host and co-learner, Brandon White, English language arts specialist for Unbounded, where we seek to serve students across the country by keeping our work and learning grounded within the intersection of equity, instruction, content, and standards. The history of educators of color runs deep in the United States. The Complexion of Teaching and Learning podcast chronicles the experiences of Black, Latinx, Asian, and Native American educators by first exploring the Black educator experience before, during, and right after slavery. Then, exploring the experiences of Black, Latinx, Native American, and Asian educators during the Jim Crow era. And finally, we'll explore the impact of the Brown versus Board decision and the current professional realities that educators of color face today. In this episode, we will be exploring race systemically through observing the oppression, resilience, and contributions of Black, Latinx, Asian, and Native American educators during a period of American segregation and expansion. Throughout the episode, we'll be attending to two of Unbounded's five charges by talking about race systematically and examining bias and its role in our work and learning. I hope that the reflections and insights throughout the podcast and the discussion questions available at the end provide fuel for meaningful, necessary, and courageous conversations that you and your colleagues can have about how teaching and learning have evolved in this racialized country. In the previous episode of this podcast, we explored the preservation of teaching and learning norms of black people before, during, and right after chattel slavery. As explained by Professor Heather Andrea Williams, this period where black people sought to administer their own brand of teaching and learning led to the founding of HBCUs, creating a deployable and academically trained teaching force for the recently freed and underserved black people as they moved into the Jim Crow period. Along with the emancipation and segregation of enslaved Africans, immigration and territorial expansion were also occurring simultaneously. During this time period, Native Americans, Latinx Americans, Asian Americans, and African Americans, with their own ways of being, teaching, and learning, would have to interact with an expanding nation that would challenge how they taught and learned. Coming of age as a student and as a teacher, There was a process available for me to understand how the proverbial thread of African-American education has had to weave through the policies and practices of our education system. I was fortunate enough to have educator mentors like Dr. Susan G. Goodwin and Yolanda Montalvo, who provided me with access to the legacies of cultural knowledge and also the training to enact a systemic analysis that made this thread clear. In understanding this as an educator, whose students mostly identified as Black and Latinx, I was able to better understand the Latinx educational experience and how it, too, involved the weaving through the systemically unjust policies of the U.S. education system. Even though I would say that I didn't understand it enough, it was still way more than I understood about the education threads that belong to Asian Americans and Native Americans. Of the many hundreds of students I taught and dozens of teachers I've worked with, only a small number of teachers and students identified as Asian or Native American. This limited visibility caused me to decontextualize their very rich education threads, leaving my view of education oppression and education enrichment incomplete. Seeking to complete this tapestry with all of its threads would allow us to witness critical overlaps, dismantle our own biased lenses, and harness diverse teaching methods, 
We can use these stories and ways of teaching and learning to unshackle our instruction and interactions with each other in our schools and school networks. In this period of domestic and international expansion, the United States had to ask itself a critical question. What permissions and freedoms, educational or otherwise, do we allow for people who are not white? There would be a variety of answers for a variety of non-white groups. In the case of the newly freed Africans who wanted to control the direction of their education, they accepted missionary, then largely federal and corporate philanthropic assistance, which led to the founding of HBCUs, and in turn, rapidly growing the black teacher workforce. University of Pennsylvania professor Heather Andrea Williams, author of Self-Taught, African-American Education in Slavery and Freedom, explains this growth. Right after the war, you see black people, even during the war in Virginia, for instance, where the unions had taken over, you see black people forming schools. And sometimes it's in their houses, sometimes it's in their churches. And then um, what happened is that they started um, requesting that white missionaries come from the North or missionaries come from the North because the people who had managed to acquire some literacy during slavery were the first teachers. And so in the letters that went North from, from them, you see them saying, our teacher has given the students all he has, and we need somebody who's been more formally trained. And so the first people to set up schools for black people were black people. And then you get missionaries from the American Missionary Association. That's the biggest one, but there were several missionary organizations coming. And they sent ministers and they sent teachers. And I think it's just interesting to note that Black people in many of these communities were really um, set on being self-determining. They had been under the thumb of white people for a very long time, and many of them wanted to shape their own communities and to provide what they could. And so you see battles, especially between white ministers and black ministers, over who's going to control this educational project. And so you've got a cadre of black teachers, but they're not formally trained. They bring in white teachers to, to help teach just children and the adults in the community who wanted to learn. And um, John Alford was from the Freedmen's Bureau, and he was doing the education angle of the Freedmen's Bureau. And he's writing letters from all over the South, Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina. And he's really advocating for formal training of black teachers. He said, these are the people who are really going to teach in black communities and we need to, to train them. And so then you see the missionary organizations um, set, setting up schools. And so uh, many of the, the schools that became colleges started out as normal schools, which is where teachers were trained. And so they would be training teachers and ministers. And the idea was that black people would have to be self-sufficient and that they were the ones who would be going into the nooks and crannies of black communities, many of which were still on plantations. Um, and so you have to create a, a body of trained teachers. And you see teachers then, so, so the, the young people would go to these schools 
and then go back home and start teaching in the summer. They call them field schools. They would go out to the fields. They would go to wherever the black community was and start to teach. So as soon, again, following that pattern that we had seen during slavery, as soon as you learn something, you go back and you start to teach it. And so that's how those schools came about, you know, schools like Fisk and um, Hampton, Howard, um, Tougaloo. It's these young people going off with some literacy, they had managed to get some teaching either from black people or from the missionary teachers, and then they go off to become better educated, to go back and teach and become ministers and do whatever else that community needed. This method cultivated a critical mass of black teachers to provide education to other black youth and elders. This expansion originally started with newly freed black communities wanting to exercise their traditional educational practices of holism, collective work, high expectations, and education for liberation. Would these long established ways of teaching and learning be compromised by the systems and structures set up for normal schools to train black educators? This marriage of federal and corporate philanthropic funding would turn out to develop its own interests and agendas, which frequently countered the original pedagogical agendas of the black community. According to Dr. William H. Watkins' book, The White Architects of Black Education, early corporate philanthropy such as the Rockefeller Foundation, the Rosenwald Fund, Peabody Foundation, Carnegie Corporation, and Slater Fund would provide economic, political, and ideological platforms for these normal schools, noting that, quote, this adaptation and accommodationism would dominate education, the curriculum, and social policy for decades, end quote. This was done with the goal of creating a post-slavery class that wasn't embraced as full citizens as guaranteed by the new 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution, but instead embraced as a secondary class that would serve as the new labor force that was developing during this age of American economic and territorial expansion. Curricularist and former Civil War general Samuel Chapman Armstrong would create a model for this type of prohibitive education. He founded the now legendary HBCU Hampton University and was a mentor of pioneering black educator Booker T. Washington. In college, when I read Booker T. Washington's autobiography, Up From Slavery, I remember Washington having glowing words about Armstrong's leadership. I would later come to understand that Armstrong would create a leading educational model for corporate philanthropy intended to dilute prospective black educators' desires to use education for liberation, and instead, to emphasize training for subjugation. Armstrong wrote a mission statement for the school which read, the thing to be done is clear, to train selected Negro youths who shall go out and teach and lead their people, to teach respect for labor, to replace stupid drudgery with skilled hands, and in this way build up an industrial system for the sake not only of self-support and intelligent labor, but for the sake of character. He would continue to reflect his degrading educational philosophy in stating, quote, the darkies are so full of human nature and have to be most carefully watched over. To simply control them is one thing, but to educate, to draw them out, to develop the germ of good possibilities into firm fruition requires the utmost care, end quote. This educational philosophy, one that was less about education and more about control, 
put me at a pause. Unfortunately, I had to ask, is this outlook and approach to educating students of color an old relic? Or are they relevant foundations to the white saviorism that still exists today in classrooms that allow for expectations to be lowered? Are these the roots of control that you see in many zero-tolerance schools that obsessively police and survey black and brown student bodies during instruction and in the hallways, distrusting their learning capacities and their movement? Are these the roots of fallaciously demanding grit and perseverance from students in a way that presumes they had none before they walked into these institutions? Professor Williams further breaks down the intentionality of this educational philosophy and how it was funded. Tuskegee, which he found, which Booker T. Washington founded, he had gone to Hampton and then he established Tuskegee, got a lot of funding from white philanthropists because you're going to have black people and white people in the society. The white people will be the intellectuals. They will continue to run things. And the black people will um, do the, the labor. And that had been the model during slavery and a model that, um, also had an ideology behind it that said white people are suited for this and black people are suited for that. And in order for the white people to be able to do the intellectual work, you need the black people who are going to um, do the labor. So there was a senator from South Carolina who called it a mud fill. Every society needs a mud fill. So that's the base, that's the bottom and they have to do the work. And, and for us, those are the black people. And that frees us up to think and rule and, and design and come up with new ideas. This white saviorism, restrictive, low belief model in educating educators of color, was philosophically and financially supported by philanthropy. Philanthropy and education started with these approaches and philosophies. When I fast forward to 2020, as a person who is currently working at a nonprofit funded by philanthropy, in a network of nonprofits also funded by philanthropy? I have to ask these daunting questions. How have the current nonprofit and philanthropy spaces reflected these roots? How have we counteracted them? Do we see these roots as behavioral legacies that constantly need to be weeded out of our modern day structures and practices? These roots of diverting black educators' intentions to best serve a racist structure was a major source of debate between two black educator titans, Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. Considering that Washington was funded by this oppressive model, it has been easy for me to view him as an educator that, despite his extreme importance, still permitted white people to limit the purpose and the capacities of future black teachers and laborers. However, Professor Williams encouraged me to have more nuanced thinking about his legacy and the legacy of those black educators who accepted this philanthropic model. Booker T. Washington was being very pragmatic, knowing that this is what white people are going to support. Now, you know, people have in recent years been studying Booker T. Washington and saying he was, it's not so simple, that he was actually, he had some subversive ideas, that he was not, he, he was getting what he could from white people, and he was saying publicly, yes, we can be separate, but he was also supporting black people who were making intellectual strivings. And he himself was an example of somebody who was an intellectual. He was not somebody who was out farming, for instance. And so, so those, those are the debates. What role should 
what kind of education should black people get to prepare them for what kind of roles within the society? If they're going to colleges that are just like the colleges that white people go to, then you must be preparing them to be like white people in the society and to, to lead and to rule. And that was not acceptable to the vast majority of, of white people. But Booker T um, became the acceptable model to philanthropists who gave, you know, millions of dollars to his school, but also to any school that he gave a blessing to. And so you have stories about a woman who's um, running a school, and she, on the outside, talks about the Booker T model, but inside she's teaching Greek and Latin. But to get funding, to get the support of Booker T. Washington and the white people who had money, you had to say, this is what we're doing. While it is clear that the goal of these institutions was to control Black education and not support it, this instructional resistance to corporate philanthropic oppression is important to note because it reflects the dance and creative subordination many educators of color embrace today. As a teacher in what Dr. Patina Love describes as the educational survival complex, I was regularly pressured to make and or accept decisions that were not in the best interest of my instruction or my students. However, like many of the leaders and students at these HBCUs at the time, creative insubordination certainly helped me to be able to do what I know is culturally and professionally right in an environment where so much can be systemically wrong. Although there were black people navigating corporately biased initiatives to accomplish their own agenda, there were also black educators that were operating independently of such influences. I had the opportunity and honor to sit down with Emory College professor Vanessa Siddle Walker, author of many books and articles about the history of black educators, including the lost education of Horace Tate, and she explained the building of black education and educator networks during and after Reconstruction, organized by unsung education heroes like Richard Wright. The story that um, we have almost uniformly believed is one that suggests that black educators weren't really involved in forms of uplift for black children. If you look at the literature, right, that's almost, that's the dominant script in much of the narrative about black educators, at least it used to be up until about maybe 30, 40 years ago. Um, and even in the places where people wrote a different narrative, that wasn't the dominant thread, right? It was known among a few educators. So, so I think the first thing we have to do is to, to tear down this idea that that they weren't involved. They actually were involved. They were very involved. And and they were involved in ways beyond the fear narrative. That's the dominant way that we think about them in desegregation. So if we flip all the way back to, to the Reconstruction era, what we see is black educators, many of whom were ministers at the time, working in ways to exploit the opportunities available in reconstruction. So they are immediately creating schools, they are immediately uh, gathering money. Um, in Georgia, the Savannah Education Association has its doors open all, you know, like within a month of the time of freedom. 
and they've got a whole network so that they can, a community network so that they are able to allow the children to be able to go to school. Now, the the whole building of networks in that time, building schools, finding teachers, right, all of these pieces push back against the dominant belief of the era that the black man cannot learn, right? It's a definite to, to push for literacy in the ways in which they did. As Booker T. Washington says, it was like a whole race trying to go to school. To push for literacy in that moment is definitely a challenge to the dominant narrative about who we are, who we were. I don't think the difficulty, though, with that era is that we don't have as many we don't have we don't have as many archival records of that period. So we have some understanding of how they pushed and the results and the ways in which they're challenging dominant white norms about who black people are. But we don't have a lot of records. So for example, the case in Augusta, Georgia, where Ware High School is the Supreme Court case where Ware High School is um is ended while they maintain a high school for whites, this is the year after Plessy, right? And black people are assuming, well, even even with Plessy, you have to give us a high school, right? Because the white people have a high school, and so you have to give us a high school. But in this particular case, when the Supreme Court basically says, no, you don't have, we don't have to give you a high school, that's the signal that says, you all don't really have to even implement Plessy, and it's okay. I'm saying this to say I'm pretty sure it was black. It was the black educational organization that was pushing that case to push for equality. So this generational sense of push of protecting black children that we are going to see in later periods, the activities that are going to be generational, Date from Reconstruction, in the case of Georgia, Richard Wright, the educator, the Reconstruction educator who first calls a meeting of black teachers in 1878 to protest the inequality and distribution of funding for black schools. We're going to see generational advocacy that begins with him, ends with Horace Tate in 1970 when they dismantled those networks, and the generational advocacy is going to be the same across these generations. Black educators are not and were not the only folks of color that had to navigate this oppressive space. As it turns out, Hampton Institute, during the time of General Armstrong, was also enrolling plenty of Native Americans to experience this identity-segregating, white supremacy-serving education as well. Native Americans who are living, learning, and teaching on this land for thousands of years have had to intensely fight to maintain those rights and freedoms since the beginning of European settler colonialism. Indigenous Americans represent a wide diversity of cultural practices, values, and ways of teaching and learning. And like African Americans, their approach to education is rooted in relationships, collectivism, reciprocity, self-identity, actualization, and storytelling, all of which are deeply grounded in connectivity with the land. The land acts as a foundation from which all reality and existence, seen and unseen, springs from. 
functioning as a base from which all existence and reality can be understood. As indigenous education scholar Sandra Styers notes, quote, land is an articulation of ancient knowledge grounded in the experiences of self in relationship to place, end quote. She goes on to say, quote, indigenous literacy is based on reading the cosmos. It is about reading all things around us that are not necessarily the written word, but nevertheless contain valuable information, end quote. I was lucky enough to be able to have a conversation with indigenous education research and student advocacy professor Amanda Tacchini, who would further expand on and demonstrate in our conversation what indigenous learning norms are and what they mean to indigenous peoples. Hello, everybody. My name is Amanda Tachini. I introduce myself to you all in my Navajo language. It's also a way in which I decolonialize spaces that I'm at. And what I shared with you is my introduction of where I'm from. And it's also an introduction of the kinship relationships that I have. Navajos are matrilineal, so I take the clan of my mother first and then my father and then our, my grandparents. And that's and the last thing I said in Navajo was that's the way I identified myself as a Dineh woman. And I and those three, that short brief introduction is really what sets indigenous knowledge system and ways of being into motion. Because I identify my relationship to my family, my kinship relationship. I identify where I come from, my connection and relationship to the land. And then I assert myself as an indigenous woman identifying the matrilineal society, which is beautiful because in our patriarchy world, there are enclaves of matrilineal societies that are thriving. And so that's what brings me here today as a Dineh woman. Indigenous ways of knowing and um, systems is actually a way of life. (laughs) It's a way in which we see the world. So it entails epistemological, ontological, axiological ways of being, ways of knowing, ways of teaching. It encompasses all of that. And so much of what you read, if you were to read Indigenous work by, there's there's so many wonderful scholars who are writing on this topic. You can see some themes that arise in encompassing the importance of relationships and the importance of um, relationality and reciprocity, which is really tied to kinship, family, community, and, um, and the collective. And so you see a lot of the importance of that. So the way in which we see the world is often framed from us. We're thinking of others more than we think of ourselves. And then another important theme that I find is this also relationship to the to the land and to the waterways. And so there's these teachings that we are connected to the land. We are connected to protect it and care for it. And this is, you know, a lot of this is tied to stories that have been passed down from generations and also the way we were brought up, the way we were taught to care for, um, to not waste things and to care for and protect our land. And so um, that relationship then is encompassing this idea of relationality and reciprocity is, is really 
framed around taking care of people and taking care of the land, understanding that we are all related and connected in that way. And so you see those, I think those are main tenets that we think about in terms of all the, all the way in which we do our work in indigenous ways. Um, oh, and I didn't want to neglect too this idea of like even an honoring and the respect of the universe, the cosmos, creator, however in ways in which each each person um, makes that connection. But there's also an understanding that there's another there's another way that's beyond maybe some of our comprehension of how life is created. And so it's understanding, respecting, and having that relationship also. And so when you ask me the question about, you know, indigenous um, ways of being and how that's incorporating education, it really eluded in those ways. But it, again, that's why I said it's like our way of life is totally ceasing. Um, and it's, it sounds so simple, but there's so much depth to that. These ways of teaching and learning would also undergo persecution throughout the United States' expansion of territory and power. Throughout the 19th century, it would be state-supported missionary work through policies and organizations such as the Indian Removal Act, Civilization Fund, and the Bureau of Indian Affairs that would work to provide quote-unquote re-education to indigenous nations. It is important to note that prior to this re-education mission, military intervention was often a tactic used against indigenous peoples. However, due to exhaustive wars with Native Americans during expansion, and the devastating loss of life and stability due to the Civil War, the government began supporting initiatives to intervene through Native American education programs instead of military means. These supposed re-education and civilization programs involved dismantling all of the ways Native Americans taught each other about the world. First, the foundational knowledge of land was disrupted, as indigenous students were taken from the land from which they made all connections to reality and placed into dozens of boarding schools across the states, such as the infamous Carlisle Indian School. In their removal from the land, they were removed from parents and elders that would guide their education and discovery. Second, these schools had what leading indigenous education theorist Dr. Sandy Grand calls a colonialist curriculum a curriculum that trained Native students to value private property, and one that would attack the relationships and collectivism practiced by indigenous peoples by advocating for, as the founder of the Carlisle School called it, the disintegration of tribes. Also, these schools had English-only curricula that touted the power and greatness of Anglo-American life. This curriculum often included a textbook called A History of the United States of America, which included very little about who Native Americans were, other than supposedly noble savages, and included no information about the wars, conflicts, and broken treaties between them and colonists. All of this took place in boarding houses, where Native students were frequently left malnourished, sick, and overcrowded. The popular mantra during this time period was, kill the Indian, save the man. These oppressive policies and practices, both physically and psychologically violent, reflect how education systems have been a critical tool for what is often identified as settler colonialism. Amanda Tacchini further explains the anatomy and reach of this concept. Settler colonialism is based upon this idea of settlers coming to a new place and occupying and maintaining control of land, right? And so that is the history of this nation state. 
and um, other nation states around the globe. And so, so colonialism is that the premise is based upon possession, ownership, um, hierarchy, power, dominance, which is in, in, in a lot of respect antithetical for indigenous ways of knowing that is seeing that we are connected and related to the land and not being in possession of the land, to be a caretaker of it and not being, not feeling like we own it. Um, and then therefore others don't, that kind of construct that settler colonialism has. But it's also um, this idea of power, dominance, those kinds of frames are also contrary to indigenous ways of understanding that we are all together and thinking about our respected relationships with each other. So, um, so there are definitely roles um, historically in our stories, in our traditions of particular people or particular families and kinship who have particular roles to play in the larger community and that we all have those roles to play and there isn't a hierarchy or dominance over one or the other. It's an understanding of that we are all in community with each other, that our world can work because of that relationship. So, so, so in terms of learning that idea of settler colonialism in terms of power dominant um, position of land can, is still happening to this day and is still also occurring in, in schooling. This idea of dominance and power of knowledge, who, who has the power of to control the knowledge that is shared in the classroom. Um, and this includes the erasure of indigenous knowledge systems and indigenous ways in curriculum and teaching. And, and so forth. Despite this educational oppression, there was indigenous resistance. Many southeastern tribes like the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Muscogee, Choctaw, and Seminole nations created schools of their own. Knowing that the United States government would further colonize, this was a survival strategy to use white settler methods of organizing education while still preserving traditional ways of teaching, learning, and sovereignty within those structures. Indigenous students in the boarding schools resisted by smuggling traditional food, stealing food, using their native languages, and running away. Back to the land and tribal connections that traditionally funded their education. Additionally, their traditional educators, parents and elders, encouraged them to run away, to avoid the roundups of Native American children, and to resist the schoolwork that was stripping students of their traditional knowledge and learning methods. In reflecting on the history of her own nation, Professor Tachini shares similar resistance tactics her Navajo ancestors demonstrated during this time period. Resistance has been a part of our, um, been a part of the way in which Indigenous people have been able to survive today and continue to thrive. I mean, if you think about it, federal policies have been written and enacted to erase us, to at one point in time kill us so that others can occupy the land and the resources connected to that, to problematize us or pathologize us so that we are viewed as less than, uh, incapable of being um, civilized citizens, which then reinforce this argument of therefore we can take the land. So all of this is connected to possession of land and ownership and resources. 
and throughout time, our people have resisted those efforts. And as a Navajo, I'm reading more and learning more about the history and the ways in which my people have resisted colonial efforts to change them or erase them. And when when education like and Western Eurocentric white education came to Navajo, it was in our land, it was in the Arizona, New Mexico, Utah border areas, or the way we say in Navajo is the Nefakea, our Navajo land. It was in the late 1800s, 1800s timeframe. And schools started and federal, federal um, agents and churches at the time were puzzled because they could not get data students. Navajo students attend their schools. You know, they're coming in thinking this is a way they're going to assimilate and change our people. So they're coming in thinking probably, oh, they'll, they'll, they'll need this, they'll want it, they'll be coming in and pouring themselves into these schools. But our community resisted um, those schools. They didn't allow their children to attend them. They hid their, their babies, their children, when Recruiters, I don't know if that's the term you use, when official school officials would try to come and take students, the young people away, our Navajo people would hide them or tell them to go somewhere, but until they go and um, act like they didn't know when um, the school officials would come. Those are resistant acts. And also just displays how intelligent and smart our Navajo people are. We're not dumb and naive to our kids' school considering the history and what they were going through at that time when their land were being stolen, when they were actually humiliated and hurt and beaten and starved and so forth. And so at the origin of these Western schools, at the onset, Navajos were resistant and not wanting their children to attend school. So when I've been rereading and listening to those stories, it's just been really affirming. We're also affirming that they're learning Navajo ways already in our home. That's education. They're self-sufficient and able to care for the land and the people and others, and that's the way in which that they see themselves and the way they want to teach to their young people to the next generation. It was amazing for me to discover that indigenous people would carry similar teaching and learning traditions as my African-American culture and would have to combat both physical and psychological ethnic cleansing by the people, policies, and practices of the United States. I was raised in what was once Haudenosaunee territory, and as students, we learned about Native Americans as people of the past. And as I grew to be a teacher in Rochester, that message was allowed to have a home in my mind because I rarely saw Native Americans, let alone taught them. This racist and violent history has promoted a powerful physical segregation and an intellectual pedagogical isolation. Yet in the standards that call for meaningful collective work and the literature standards that called for using setting to contextualize everything else occurring in a story and the quote-unquote new research that calls for socio-emotional learning based on school building relationships and community engagement, I was practicing greatly assimilated fragments of Native American teaching and learning. I wonder what would have been saved about America and American education if it wasn't so busy trying to kill the Indian. While I was very isolated and misguided about the Native American experience as a student and a teacher, 
I had a lot more exposure to Latinx cultures, particularly Puerto Rican, Mexican, Dominican, and Cuban communities. The elementary, middle, and even high schools I attended had a surprisingly high amount of teachers of color, and many of them were Latinx. Additionally, the schools in my school district were predominantly black and Latinx, so as a learner and later a teacher, it was always interesting to observe the key similarities and nuanced differences in how we socialized, taught, and learned. Latinx is a big umbrella term, but usually it refers to people with cultural ties to Latin America, which includes territories colonized by both Spain and Portugal. Due to a long, varied, and no doubt violent history of culture clash and culture melding in these colonies, Latinx people typically represent an amalgamation of Spanish, Portuguese, African, and indigenous cultures. And when it comes to teaching and learning, their indigenous and African heritage is often reflected. However, the colorist hierarchy in these regions, even after colonial rule, often wouldn't permit diverse ways of teaching and learning, and would fuel prohibitions about who can learn and what can be learned. I had the chance to speak with Dr. Victoria Maria McDonald, professor at University of Maryland at College Park, and author of the book Latino Education in the United States. And she helped unpack the nature of this massive group label. Unlike, I think, it's the Anglo-British colonists when they came, who were actually in policy, you know, not supposed to intermix with Native Americans, in the Spanish colonies, they were actually encouraged, um, the soldiers, settlers, and missionaries to mix with Native American uh, women of the Caribbean and Latin America. So you have this really interesting hierarchy, I think it's important to lay out, um, that impacts all the way to today. Um, and that is what we call today colorism, um, which is the hierarchy of caste or casta, that they called it at the time, um, that resulted from the lightest mixing of the people who were born in Spain called peninsulares, um, being the highest caste who would be available to them the highest level of education, land, and political status. And then as you go down, you have the mixing. So if you had a Spanish uh, settler would then marry a Native American woman, then that would be a great result what they call the Criollos or Creoles. Um, and the Creoles are the ones who actually end up rebelling against the Spanish. Um, but you have then that status is slightly less than those born in Spain, which of course decreased. So then you have a different status, and they're actually up to 40 some statuses. But if you mix a Native American with uh, a African, it was called a Zambo. Uh, Spanish uh, with a black was a mulatto, mulata, which we know that word also uh, from today. So the privilege you would get um, based on your mixed status. Um, continue today because, again, the lighter skin was favored, the more European blood, less Native American features. And you have rules like if you were Native American, um, uh, you could not attend the new Hispanic universities that were created in Mexico City, for example. If you were completely Native American or Native American mixed with African, you would only be able to attend some of the manual schools. So these um, mixtures and colorism um, with, again, lighter skin Latinos being favored is something important to keep in mind. There's really important research done by Edward uh, Tellis, or Tellis at Princeton, 
and his co-author Mudia, where they do great research with colorism scales that show that Latino children in schools, um, teachers, both white and Latino teachers and black, will favor and have more discrimination against the darker featured um, and more Indian Native American featured uh, children. So I just wanted to sort of set that out, that we understand how those colonial practices um, uh, were began. And at that time, again, you didn't have specific what we would call Latinx teachers yet, right? Because that's a whole new ethnic group that's created as a result of colonization. All of this marginalizing of learners and teachers of color was going to get more complex after the Mexican-American War. As abolitionism, the Civil War, and segregation were impacting Black educational practices, Mexican people were wrestling with United States territory expansion, which was impacting how they provided education to their communities. This is because, after the Mexican-American War, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848 made a sizable portion of Mexico's territory property of the United States. This included California, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, Nevada, and parts of Colorado and Wyoming. Despite there being language in the treaty that protected Mexican citizenship and property, these rights were often not respected. Throughout the second half of the 19th century, thousands of Mexicans were dispossessed of the land their families called home for generations. Having their livelihood and possibly having their land and community-based ways of teaching and learning disrupted. Mexicans were othered into the American caste system, However, this caste system would mix with previous legacies of colorism. So how Mexicans would be engaged in schools and outside schools would be different than African-Americans. Professor Maria McDonald explains. Latinx children, especially talking about Mexican-Americans of the Southwest, you know, they were not segregated de jure by law in schools the way African-Americans were. And so in many of the areas where you had both a segregated Mexican school and a white school, there are always some Mexican children in those white schools. And those were, again, these lighter-skinned children. So there were usually four factors I found in my research. Um, one is those who just phenotypically looked very light. Sometimes you've had a brother put in the white school and the sister they try to put in the Mexican school. Because it was based on, on appearance, not on a test that students took. Um, that's what would be fought in the law. And so then you had people like, I'll say myself, a um, person who has a white father and a Latino mother, or vice versa. But because of the surname, so my surname, for example, is McDonald, but my mother's name is Posada. But sometimes school officials would just look down and see a surname and say, oh, Smith, McDonald, they go to the white school. Um, but they might be just as dark looking as a white child. So you have this, what I call, porous opportunities of Mexican-American children based only not on their academic talent necessarily um, or English skills, but just based on, you know, colorism, income status, and American, quote, American surnames. The goal of educating Mexicans in previously Mexican territory was to shift thinking and allegiance to Anglo-American values and expansion, instead of maintaining allegiance to a Spanish-informed, heterogeneous culture. 
While the system segregation was more complicated than black segregation, this attempt to Americanize Mexican students prompted one universal federal law in these Mexican schools. Provide English-only instruction and forbid any use of the Spanish language and all of its variations. In Professor Maria McDonald's book, she points out that in many previously Mexican territories, Mexicans did not necessarily oppose learning the English language, but certainly also didn't want to lose their ability to communicate in their Spanish dialects. This is because verbal and written language is code and coding for culture. Code and coding that educates and programs other people who descend from or respectfully engage with that culture. Prohibition of native language is a classic colonizer strategy to change the education and programming code of other cultures for the purpose of substituting it with a language code that makes it easier for the colonizer to control minds, community, and territory. It is an attempt to re-engineer teaching and learning. Professor Maria McDonald explains how this territorial expansion and language prohibition would impact the population and potency of Mexican-American teachers. So in terms of teachers, um, you have from Latinx teachers, I'll start with uh, Mexican-American, um, the development of sort of teachers who are from the Latinx community themselves was very small and concentrated in areas like Brownsville, Texas, parts of South Texas that had almost 80-90% Mexican-American communities. Um, and that's because in communities, the more whites that were there, more Anglos that took over, as uh, more Mexicans came in, most um, of them blocked the pipeline to teaching or high school, even or college. Um, so Latinx teachers where they existed were um, in communities with their own children, usually. In fact, in some places, they were forbidden to teach white children. They would be put in other schools, the white children, or moved to another district. Um, or if you could have, again, teasing out some of these subtleties, in places like New Mexico and Colorado um, in the 1800s, you really had mostly um, either the Catholic schools um, priests and nuns teaching the children, even though they were run under public school auspices. Um, so the, in other words, the emergence of what we might call, uh, you know, we know in history, black teachers under Jim Crow, for example. You didn't have that until quite late. I mean, remember like as late as 1966 in Los Angeles, where you had, you know, more half the student population Mexican American. There were only 2% of the teachers were Mexican-American, and less than 1% were administrators. So Mexican-American teachers as a cohort were um, quite late. Even all the segregated Mexican schools, they had white teachers. So it's not parallel to what we think. Oh, Mexican segregated schools, Mexican teachers. No, you had white teachers there who were actually pushed there in some cases as punishment or they were the new teachers. So for the teachers to, um, you know, get certified, attend normal school, and then teacher education programs, of course, you had to graduate from high school. For years, there was a practice. They would, first of all, students would be kept in these elementary schools 
in the first grade for like three or four years. Um, in other words, Mexican Americans were not seen as future citizens. They were seen that they were going to work the field, work the canneries, um, you know, other kinds of manual labor. And so on the one hand, you had a blocked pipeline where very few reached high school. I mean, again, as late as 1960, the median level of uh, grades of school was only eight years for Mexican-Americans. Um, and so when you say to yourself, how could you have this segregated um, community kind of, again, it was sort of similar to African-Americans across the tracks, right? Put you across the tracks and in rare circumstances, we're going to be doing the, the teaching because they didn't want Spanish taught in those schools. So if they put a Mexican teacher, they would have Spanish speaking. They wanted English only. Like our students were paddled for speaking Spanish. They had their mouths washed out with soap. Even on the school bus, they were forbidden the playground to speak Spanish. So if you had a Spanish teacher who was culturally and linguistically congruent, that would defy the Anglo zeal, right, for Americanization, assimilation. Hearing Professor Maria McDonald makes me think about my experiences with students who were English language learners. Was my classroom a safe space for both their home language and for their English language development? If my instruction were to be entirely based on high expectations and rigor, then I should be engaging the entire student, leveraging their funds of cultural and linguistic knowledge to expand their access to new information and skill sets. However, being an ELA teacher that wasn't certified or specialized in educating English language learners, I wasn't necessarily professionally encouraged to find best practices. And if you have your own biases about English learners, you're even less likely to seek them out. I knew a decent amount of my students spoke Spanish in their homes, neighborhoods, and sometimes in the hallways at school. While I didn't believe I had a language bias, there I stood watching them leave their home language at the school door and classroom door, all of us aware that it would not be affirmed between bells. What was it about this teaching and learning space in school that made them uncomfortable sharing a language identity from which they were taught and learned? More importantly, what opportunities for meaningful, engaging, and affirming instruction were missed due to the isolation of their languages? How could I have used culturally and linguistically sustaining practices to affirm their identities as bilingual learners? Spanish language exclusion clearly has deep roots in the United States. But despite this oppression, there was resistance. In escuelitas, or little schools, in small towns across the territory, the Spanish language was still honored and used as a tool to access teaching and learning. In states and counties that had English-only mandates in schools that weren't rigidly enforced, those mandates were ignored. Professor Maria McDonald further breaks down the instructional, communal, and political power that would be used to resist oppressive language policies. There are pockets of areas in Arizona where you had the beginning of women, uh, Latinx women attending the normal schools and being able to teach. In some of the areas, again, where you didn't have segregation as rigidly enforced. So Texas is seen as the worst of all the places, honestly. And that's why a lot of Mexican-Americans went to California, which had more liberal policies in some places. Um, 
And then parts of Colorado, New Mexico, you have political strength, right? Where you have political strength, Latinx communities have more power to try to maintain their culture. Um, Texas is known as the harshest state because it was a slave state, right? So you already had this attitude of white people who came there towards slaves that they also then, and Africans that they then passed on to Mexicans or others who were darker and seen as inferior. Speaking of what were the, and I've done subsequent research, of course, um, since the book was published, on some of the teachers and schools that were independent. They were neither the Catholic schools, which many parents who had money did send their children to, to avoid the severe kind of racism in the public schools. Um, but there were private independent schools run or raised money by Mexican communities, especially the rural areas. And yes, those teachers who were of the same culture, who again pushed what we know is good at any place, high aspirations and exposure to role models in history and Spanish literature, whether it was colonial past or not, but just again to show pride in the heritage of who they were, things they would not get in the public schools. Mexican control over Mexican schooling, including content and language that was responsive to Mexican-American culture, was a powerful act during this time period of United States aggression, an act that often isn't kept in the collective education mind when we think of how communities of color value education, especially Mexican-Americans who are frequently mislabeled as having apathy towards education. Dr. Wayne Au, University of Washington at Bothell professor, longtime author and editor of Rethinking Schools magazine, and co-author of the book Reclaiming the Multicultural Roots of U.S. Curriculum, refers to this amnesia in the education field as curricular silence and calls for what he names curricular revisionist history. Curricular silence is really the idea that um, uh, we can think of it in a couple of, couple of ways, but really it's the idea that there are these absences right, in um, our, both our curriculum history and also in our curriculum generally, right? Um, and so, you know, like when we did that project, it originally came about because um, uh, Dr. Brown and I were, um, you know, teaching curriculum theory courses and looking at this historical stuff around um, the origins of sort of the field of curriculum studies and, and the origins of really the idea of curriculum in the U.S. Um, and U.S. schools. And then we saw that there was just this huge gap, like there were no voices uh, or hardly any voices of folks of color um, and other groups of women, and other, you know, like, like you know, there's other identities that were absent. But in this case, we were focusing mainly on race um, and just seeing that, that there was literally this sort of silence around what communities of color were saying about the kind of curriculum they wanted for their, for their kids. And so um, we, you know, sort of dove, uh, dove into the idea of thinking about, you know, curricular revision of history, right? And so what does it mean when there's a canon, this sort of foundation of what folks think of when they think of the curriculum as a field and, and um, in education and in educational studies, um, and that there was a whole chunk of history missing, missing, and that we needed to fix that. You know, we need to revise that history so that it actually included the folks that were here and the folks that were involved in the conversation and not just leave it to the idea that it was a bunch of, um, you know, mostly white men. Uh, almost entirely in, you know, in the ivory tower of the academy, which is what the, the uh, traditional history has been. 
Al argues how different ethnic groups have approached, contributed to, and responded to education in America is significantly undertold. And as a result, we miss opportunities to address the racism in our education systems and the limitations and bias in our instruction. The reality of Asian Americans, particularly Chinese and Japanese Americans during the second half of the 19th century, is yet another example of how this is true. While African Americans were seeking education on their own terms in the context of abolitionism and post-slavery segregation, and while Mexican Americans and Native Americans were seeking education on their own terms in the context of U.S. expansion and colonization, Chinese and Japanese Americans were seeking education on their own terms in the context of U.S. anti-immigration policies and practices. According to Al's book, after the U.S. took over Mexican territory on the West Coast, and after slavery was abolished, Asian immigrants were invited over to function as cheap labor until they were perceived as a threat to white jobs and Anglo culture. The book also states that, like the indigenous Americans, Asian Americans' cultural maintenance of learning and language customs for their homelands was an important endeavor, along with the possibility of returning to their homelands. How would they navigate these educational needs in the midst of such xenophobia and pressure to assimilate into white norms. Dr. Ao explains. You know, when we dove into doing, when we got into doing this chapter, you know, we didn't know what fully to expect. I mean, we had broad understandings of the history of, of Asian American education um, and Asian immigrant education in the U.S., but we didn't, we didn't have, have so many of these details to sort of flesh out and develop an understanding of it. And one of the things that we found in the midst of this is this idea that, that the that conversation amongst um, um, particularly Japanese American and Chinese American communities, since those were the largest communities during this time period, which is like sort of 1850 to, uh, you know, 1930-ish, um, that, uh, you know, there was a sort of ongoing conversation around, like, like to what degree are we educating our children uh, to stay here in the United States? And what degree are we, educating, are we educating our children to return back to our quote-unquote homeland? And this sort of liminal space of being stuck in between and then also, so it becomes, what that does is that it creates this sort of dialogue and conversation around um, uh, the kind of curriculum you want. Is it, you know, it, it ends up sort of spanning both, right? It ends up being like this connection back to, to East Asia and the homeland and those linguistic and cultural practices there and those histories, um, but also being engaged in a conversation about, you know, what does it mean to be here in the U.S. and what, what do our children need to know? Um, and is there, you know, do we need to be working towards Americanization and what would that curriculum be like? And so there's this sort of this tension that creates and it sort of spans these two, these, it spans continents really, spans the ocean. This tension is one that is very relatable to many students and teachers of color. It reminds me of education scholar Lisa Delpit's observations around providing students with access to the culture of power, things like Anglo-American academic language, resources, and high status knowledge as a tool, but not as an identity. When I taught in the educational survival complex, I tried my best to be very intentional about manipulating unavoidable anti-black and brown curricula, language demands, testing norms, and student management systems in a way that taught students how to navigate the system as opposed to being a victim of it. It's an extremely delicate balance because even with good intentions, you could accidentally be subjugating students instead of empowering them, which I would occasionally do. This is why there can be tension around these debates. 
During this time period, Japan, however, had a unique geopolitical advantage when dealing with the preservation of their curricula and U.S. oppressive policies and practices that China didn't have. Professor Ao breaks it down. Really, these communities were also players in international politics, right? And so this was, this was particularly too for the, true for the Japanese-American community here in the U.S. But in, I mean this in a very transnational sense, um, you know, where, for instance, um, uh, there was a period of time where the Japanese-American community in California was pretty upset because they were being forced to, they were, they were told basically that they had to attend what was called at the time the Oriental School, which was originally made for uh, Chinese immigrants. Um, and the Japanese-Americans wanted access uh, to the, re- the regular public schools. And they, they uh, were very strong in their opposition um, to having sort of a special segregated school and so they, they use their, you know, community power and voice their opinions publicly and in, in various um, forums and school boards and that kind of stuff. Um, and one of the things that happened was because of uh, the U.S. government, federal government's concern about the rise of Japan as, a, as an imperial power, um, actually Teddy Roosevelt stepped in at one point and actually said, you know, to him, he, he called it a quote-unquote wicked absurdity that, um, uh, that, that Japanese-Americans couldn't attend regular public schools. And so you could see this sort of this international, transnational uh, conversation, both about curriculum, but then also the, the sort of um, uh, the transnational politics sort of impinging um, on, on the Japanese-American community in particular. But it also spoke to the relative sort of weakness of China as a world power at that time as well, because there were no uh, considerations of, of the Chinese government in the dealings with, with Chinese-Americans here in the U.S. With or without homeland power and support, it was still incredibly challenging being of Asian descent in the United States during this time period, particularly after the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 barring the immigration of Chinese laborers. In regards to the Chinese Americans, there was anti-Chinese mob violence, the anti-Chinese city policies, such as, for example, in 1885 when the city of Seattle demanded all Chinese residents to leave, and anti-Chinese educational policy, with some West Coast cities like San Francisco refusing to educate Chinese-American children throughout the latter half of the 19th century. There was even one moment where school board members compared them to baboons. But you can pick up the pattern by now. There was always resistance. So really what you get is usually like politicians, media folks, and then, uh, you know, upset white parents, um, uh, like leading, leading the fight around, around this kind of stuff. And then you still get uh, Asian American parents, um, at, you know, organizing and advocating for themselves, but they're doing it almost purely as community activists, and they're always trying to needing to. They always needed to sort of tread carefully because you're also talking about this is in the midst of you know multiple waves of sort of yellow peril, right? I mean, we're talking if you look at back to the Chinese American history in the United States, there were anti-Chinese riots and lynchings and uh, killings and stuff in various uh, cities up and down the West Coast, um, also in like Colorado and other spaces, right? And so to speak out about anything around, speak about anything can, can be a risk. Um, so, um, but in terms of like the mainstream discourse, it really was sort of politicians, um, uh, you know, politicians focusing the power structure and also, you know, media conglomerates, um, uh, you know, speaking out against, uh, uh, against Chinese folks and Japanese American folks at the time. Of course, now I want to, but I want to flip that a little bit because, you know, there, there were, for instance, historically, um, uh, the San Francisco School Board twice made different schools um, uh, for uh, Chinese, the Chinese community specifically, but then there'd be fights about who got to be teachers there, 
and who controlled the curriculum, right? Um, and one of the things that both the Chinese American and Japanese American communities did is they actually created their own educational institutions, essentially. Um, and so they created very, uh, a, a pr pretty large networks of, of uh, language schools, both Chinese language schools and then later Japanese language schools. Um, and these were community run, community funded, and basically, um, you know, with Chinese teachers uh, teaching curriculum that was mainly about maintaining language, learning Chinese culture, um, and then also learning history of China. Again, we see the preservation of learning and language norms despite great marginalization and mistreatment. I didn't have the opportunity to educate many Japanese or Chinese American students in my predominantly black and Latino school district, but I know they're often perceived to be the quote unquote model minority students by American society. And to know that this same American society put forth strong efforts to discredit these communities' rights and abilities to learn is eye-opening. During this time period in the United States, much of it producing liberatory documents such as the Emancipation Proclamation, the 13th Amendment, the Burlingame Treaty, and the Civil Rights Act of 1875, American policies, practices, and systems still had a hardened commitment to controlling and mistreating non-white people. Communities of color were directly impacted by the era of economic and territorial expansion, yet still maintained ways of teaching that we can learn from today. This educational resistance would be proven valuable as the United States entered the 20th century, where policies, practices, and systems would continue to push segregation, false inferiority, and other forms of mistreatment. How would these communities respond? How would their responses impact each other? And how would it impact the modern education era? The more time I spend in this profession, the more I understand that in order to become a change agent for educational equity, you have to know three things. One, you have to know that we are part of an educational system that holds policies and practices that are historically and inherently racist. Two, you have to know that being in the system means that you are participants in it and are therefore accountable for your contributions. And most importantly, three, using your systemic awareness coupled with a strong knowledge of self, students, content, and instruction will not only allow you to be a non-complicit participant in this system, but a change agent from within it. As we go through this history, we will see this is not easy work, but we will also see how this work is not only possible, but necessary. During part two of this episode, we'll continue exploring the saga of educators of color during the Jim Crow era, international expansion into other Latinx and Asian territories, and the events leading into the landmark Brown versus Board court decision. Between now and the next episode, we invite you to open your communities up to discuss this history and its connections to our perceptions of education in America. How does this history make us rethink our current practices as educators? Do we recognize any systemic or cultural patterns during our time period that behave similarly to the time period we just explored? And how does this history make us rethink our interactions with students, particularly ones of color? Reflection and discussion about our past and present can produce the most fruitful future. I would like to thank Drs. Heather Andrea Williams, Vanessa Siddle Walker, Amanda Tacini, Victoria Maria McDonald, and Wayne Al for sharing their time, wisdom, and embracing their cultural inheritance of having the duty to share knowledge holistically, intergenerationally, and communally. Until the next episode, I wish you all fair learning journeys, peace and progress. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by Unbounded, 
where we seek to serve teachers and students across the country by keeping our work and learning grounded within the intersection of equity, instruction, content, and standards. For more about our work, please visit unbounded.org or standardsinstitutes.org. If you want to expand your content knowledge on the topics we've just explored, we strongly recommend diving into these texts. Red Pedagogy by Sandy Grand. Self-Taught, African-American Education and Freedom by Heather Andrea Williams. Indigenous and Decolonizing Studies in Education, edited by Linda Tuhiwai Smith, Eve Tuck, and Kay Wayne Yang. Hidden Provocateurs, Black Educators in a Century of Secret Struggle by Vanessa Siddle Walker. The Lost Education of Horace Tate by Vanessa Siddle Walker. Reclaiming the Multicultural Roots of U.S. Curriculum by Wayne Al, Anthony Brown, and Dolores Calderon. Latino Education in the United States by Victoria Maria McDonald. And The White Architects of Black Education by William Watkins. We'll see you next time on the next episode of The Complexion of Teaching and Learning.